Before we even begin, I'm going to start, and I don't normally do this, with a story that just sort of really kind of stumbled upon and saw its beautiful relevance today. Uh, in 1989, a financial analyst uh, was going through a car boot sale, a, uh, what we might call a flea market in America, in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, and saw this dismal countryside or wilderness scene, but it had a cool frame around it. So, 1989, he spends four American dollars to buy this picture because of the frame, because he likes the frame. He thinks the frame is cool. Kind of old and ornate. When he gets home, he starts to uh, look a little closer, and he sees that there's a tear in the canvas. And so he then, and ultimately, removes the canvas, peels back the canvas, the this dismal countryside or dismal wilderness scene. And as he peels that back, he notices that the frame falls apart in front of him. It's, it just it opens up. It, the whole thing opens up almost like a, you'd think it was something from National Treasure. And he found inside a folded document. I didn't expect it. He had paid $4 for it at Adamstown, Pennsylvania at a flea market and car boot sale. So he didn't expect much of it until he opened it up. And this is what he found, by the way, is... Uh, <coughs> completed. There we go. That's what he found. He actually, what he found was a rare original Dunlap broadside. Uh, there were 23 known copies of it. Only two of them were privately owned. You see, back in the 4th of July, 1776, John Dunlop had made uh, some printings of this Declaration of Independence. And in this Declaration of Independence, he had found one of these original printings of this by John Dunlap. So he went in and took it to Sotheby's, which is one of those auction houses, winds up getting $2.42 million for it. Uh, later, by the way, by the time it gets to 2000, Norman Lear, the television producer, will actually spend $8.14 million on the same item. He'll buy it from the person who bought it from this man. <coughs> and here's the point of it. <clears throat> that sometimes we could take a look at a text... And what we see in the text is something that looks a bit dismal, and it looks like something that's deep in the wilderness, and certainly we're going to see that. And we can enjoy the framework of it. We kind of like the way it's kind of framed in, and we kind of see how it fits into things. But the moment we start to take it apart and peel back at a moment, strangely enough, the most dismal of scenes can actually create and leave us with the greatest declaration of independence. Well, with that said, take a look at the text, and I think you'll get it what I mean by that. Excuse me, I'll try not to do that all the time. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well then, the devil took him up into the holy city to set him up on a pinnacle of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all 
the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. You pray with me, please. For the opportunity today to get into this text, I know for many people this may seem like a very familiar text. But I pray no matter where we've walked in today, whether this is the whether this information is meeting us for the first time upon our ears, or whether we feel like we could give a tour throughout the corridors of every avenue and nook and cranny of it, I pray you would meet us. And take us deeper, deeper into you, deeper into your love and deeper into not just understanding, but appreciating what it is you did here on the, in this this event. Open up the entirety of your scripture to show us how this is framed in. And as you peel back this dismal wilderness scene. Show us the declaration of independence that comes from it. So unfold that before us, I pray. Minister profoundly in this time. And have your way. I pray if there are any who have yet to know you, let this be the morning of their salvation. I pray that if there be any who are struggling, that today they would find encouragement in you here. I pray for those who are weak, they would find strength. For those that are discouraged, they would find encouragement. Lord, in short, Meet every one of us exactly where we're at and cause your word to so bud and flourish and explode before us that we are captivated and permanently transformed. So we commit this time to you every moment. Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit that I would disappear and you would be seen. And Lord, come upon me that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. So speak to every one of us individually where we need to hear you today and corporately as a family as we commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true, because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. For 3,000 years before Jesus came on earth as a man, man has suffered. From the moment he surrendered to temptation, at the garden, evicted from the, the magnificent intimacy of God in that garden that he called Eden, Heden, pleasure, man has suffered. Man, in succumbing to his own desires, neglected God's personal love and care and found himself where death now reigned, where wild beasts were, where it would be work, the wilderness. Succumbing to that temptation in the garden, man would now strive through the wilderness and the entire Old Testament is one wilderness struggle after another. One thing could be said, God's people were familiar with the wilderness. The Old Testament concluded with Malachi with a promise that one would come 
that would bring restoration, the restorer. But before the restorer, there would be that John the Baptist, that messenger, that Elijah the prophet that would come and restore the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. And he ends the book by saying, this is the Old Testament, that if this doesn't happen, God would strike the world with a curse. And then the heavens close and there's 400 years of silence. For 400 years, there are no prophets, no kings speaking God's word. And we wait. And we sit in that brokenness until that silence is broken into shards by a man consumed by conviction. Something we hadn't seen in decades, or if I should say centuries. And he is dichotomous, black and white in every way. He is dichotomous in his food and in his fashion and most importantly in his message. There are two sides. On one side, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within your grasp. And that sin-removing Lamb of God is coming. Make straight the path to your heart for this one because know that he will baptize the repentant, the truly repentant with his Holy Spirit. So prepare your hearts for him. But then on the other hand, to the unrepentant religious leaders who would think that they themselves were safe because of their Jewish roots and that their Jewish roots of tradition were now sufficient, he says that the axe is already laid there at that root and if the tree does not bear good fruit, it will be cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing hand, is, his winnowing fan is in his hand, his hand, his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, because on this side he will also baptize with fire. And the question is, which side do we want? Do we want to be baptized in the presence of God, or would we rather be baptized in fire? And it is in this message, as Jesus is coming, and John the Baptist speaks and says, there is one who is coming, who stands among us. We don't even know who it is. And as he's saying this, this coming one from infinite past, whose sandals John is unworthy to stoop and loose and carry, John makes clear that there was a specific definitive sign, the Holy Spirit in bodily form like a dove sitting upon him. And as he's speaking about that saying, he wasn't going to know who it is until that dove landed in steps his cousin. And he looks at Jesus and says, I should be baptized by you. Not because of John's recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, the King. John will testify that the only way, he says, I would not have known the man had it not been for that Holy Spirit landing in a form of a dove upon him and staying there. But because the only person that John would know of greater conviction, the only person he could ever know that was untarnished by any spot of reproachable behavior was this man. And he says, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus responds, permitted to be so, to fulfill all that is right. Jesus, with nothing to repent of but his obscurity, which is no sin at all, is baptized. And as he is praying, the heavens open. For 400 years, they've been closed. We have been waiting for God to speak. We have been starving for the presence of God. And now, at this moment, the heavens open. And the first words that are heard from God are this. To Jesus, you're my son. I love you. I'm well pleased in you. This is my, you are my beloved son. And you, I'm well pleased. And then to everyone else, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Imagine 
the magnificent shock of John the Baptist. Sure, he had been a perfect cousin, but that didn't make him Messiah the King. Of all the people that he might have been looking, and I wonder if I were John the Baptist, would I be sizing people up as they came in to be baptized? Would I be looking going, that one, he's pretty tall. That one, he's pretty buff. That one, he looks kind of like a surfer. He'll be great to pose for Jesus' pictures later. But to see one who looks just like every other, no stately former majesty that we'd be drawn to, no comeliness that we'd be attracted to him. Do you know what that means, ladies? This was the guy who had to take his sister to prom. He was not a good-looking fella. Isaiah makes that clear. So when you look at those pictures and it looks like Jesus basically stepped right out of one of those model magazines, I think we're missing the point. When they were going to stone him in places and Jesus just bowed out amidst a bunch of people, why in the world was it so easy to do that? Imagine 300 Daniel Taylors all in a place, covered with something upon their heads, wearing the same outfits. Now, I'm not saying that all Daniel Taylors look alike, but what I am saying is that all guys with a lot of facial hair sooner or later that were Mediterranean in that case, well, they tended to actually, for a while, when they're covered, most of them is covered, it would be fairly easy for Jesus to blend in if he wasn't eight feet tall, glowing in the dark, floating with a gold plate on his head. If Jesus came to earth to become to fellowship and to rescue us, he was not going to give us any extra obstacles once he got here. Here's the strange part. So Jesus has now emerged. The heavens have opened. The dove has descended. John will make clear this is your man. And then he disappears. What a strange thing. I mean, this big coming out party, you would think as this is going to be the beginning now of his public ministry, that the next thing Jesus would do is set up shop somewhere, probably in Jerusalem where everybody goes. He'd set it up down on Oxford Street, right there in the circus, so everyone could see, right? Oh, no. Strangely enough, after all of that, with the dove and the heavens parting and opening and the heavenly voice shaking the earth and rattling the hearts of the repentant, well, you see, we want to make sure we understand what he's come for. And what he's come to do is make things right. You see, he must actually succeed where man has failed, which means he must defeat the temptation. He must conquer death, and he must do that in the place where man was caught, was cast. In other words, as man was taken from the garden to the wilderness, Jesus has come to take us back. And for that to happen, he's going to have to go to the wilderness. He's going to have to go to the wilderness and do what man failed to do He's going to need to succeed. And if we're ever going to get back to that glorious place of intimacy with the Father in the garden, Jesus is going to have to go and do so. So into the wilderness he goes, and it's showdown time. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a simple word that could be easily missed, and that is the word up. When I find myself in a place of temptation, and I imagine you may feel the same, I always feel like I'm taken down. Like I'm in the pit, in the valley. When that is the case, 
Interesting, topographically, Jesus has descended 100 meters to go and be baptized in the Jordan Rift. It's like a scar on the earth because it's tectonic plates that meet each other. That is the Jordan Valley Rift. It's basically the raw form of an earthquake. So he will have to rise up, but please understand. The word temptation here, and we'll see it brought up a handful of times in this text, also means to prove or to test. And that's the part I could forget. You see, I often think that temptation, what it really is, is to be honest, just another opportunity to fail. Well, there's another option, and I can just fall on my face. There it is clearly in front of me. And the more I know that I think about it and entertain it and exercise what I think may be my right to do something about it, I know that sooner or later I'll find myself on my face. But I don't see it as the way that I did as a kid when I saw a test. That's a little quirky. Some of you might have been like this. Some of you probably were the opposite. But I actually look forward to tests. Now, my daughter's the opposite. She'd rather jump in front of a bus than take a test. But I was one of those kind of people that I just kind of felt like I was ready. You know, I mean, sometimes, not always. But there were those moments where when the test came, I was excited about it because I just kind of knew. Man, bring it on. I can't wait to do this. Because somehow I was confident that I was going to pass. Or better yet, I was confident that I was going to do quite well. And I don't think that way when I think of a temptation, because really the way I think of it is either I am going to fail miserably or just not fail miserably. There's no like A in that temptation, because I don't view it as a test, the very word that's actually used here for temptation. And that's why I get the idea that Matthew makes very clear that Jesus was, was led up. The first thing that I see once Jesus has now gone public is that the Holy Spirit's leading him and he's leading him upward. Oddly enough, he's leading him upward to a test. Now, for what it's worth, in the other two Gospels that actually bring this to light, which of course will be Mark and Luke, John won't do so because he's presenting Jesus as God and of course God isn't tempted, so that's not going to be part of his focus. But in Mark and Luke, something really interesting happens. Mark's text is actually just a couple verses. We don't have this whole story of how things are led up and all of that. All we get is basically this, that he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and angels ministered to him. That's all we really get. Mark, presenting Jesus as a servant, by the way, kind of gets the idea that, listen, there will be times of temptation and you'll find yourself somewhere in between beasts and angels. The good news is you could come out victorious. On the other side of it, Luke will give us also a very detailed account. Not necessarily the same order because that's not the point. But he does tell us this. And listen to this. This is Luke 4, verse 2, so you don't miss it. It says that Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days by the devil. That's very different. What that tells us is that it wasn't just... Like Jesus had 40 days of preparation, his fasting, you know, and his not eating and his sort of he just had 40 days to just really get in. Oh, God, I just want to be tight with you because I know 40th day is coming. Listen, first of all, we need to recognize nowhere in this text do we read that Jesus was forewarned that he would be not fed. We read it as fasting. And so we assume that it's somehow some form of like act of divine choice. But fasting just means he didn't eat. And the reason I say that is true. It could be that Jesus made the choice. But truth be told, He wasn't given any food to eat, so the choice was a fairly easy one. And we don't read, by the way, one, that God ever forewarned him that this was going to happen. Two, by the way, that he ever told him how long it was going to be. But what Luke tells us 
Because then it was a season of temptation. Luke, focusing on Jesus' humanity, Jesus went through 40 days of temptation. It wasn't just a day. For 40 days, he was getting hammered by the same questions, by the same temptations that he had to say no over and over and over and over and over again about. Because what Jesus knew is that if he had failed once, we would go to hell without a choice. Because Jesus would not fail, Hebrews would tell us that we do have a high priest who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, so we could boldly go to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4. Because we have one who was tempted in every way, able to sympathize with these weaknesses. See, think about this. It's like we got all the product and Jesus got all the bills. Because we got the mild and he tells us that sin is pleasurable for a moment but though it's pleasurable for a moment or a season the payoff is the part that's the problem and jesus never got any of the quote-unquote pleasures of sin but he sure got the bill and there's something that amazes me as i look at this to think that for 40 days jesus is going to be hammered and hammered and hammered by this individual called the tempter here matthew presenting jesus as king focuses on the showdown of the 40th day. Because the focus of Matthew is presenting Jesus as king is this. My king, if he's going to be the king over all, must have dominion and authority over everything. And thus, it's shown as a showdown. So we read that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, tempted by the devil, It tells us in Hebrews 2, because of this, it tells us in verse 18, that because he himself suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted themselves. Verse 2 tells us, and when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, I remind you, Jesus had gone up. Interesting. Because Moses had gone up for 40 days, receiving the law both times. Elijah had gone up in the strength of God to that same mountain fleeing from Jezebel. Jesus would go up to a mountain he had set apart for his disciples in Matthew 28. We see that reiterated in Acts 1.3. But for 40 days, Jesus isn't eating and the enemy's coming into his face. For 40 days, Jesus is getting weaker. And as Mark tells us, he was with the wild beasts. Let me ask you, what does that mean? Do you think that Jesus, because he was so divinely perfect, would lay down and the wolves would just snuggle with him on a cold day? My in-laws live in the desert, the high desert, mind you, and this says up as well, in California. The daytime it can reach over, it can pole vault over 40 degrees, and at night it can burrow down below 10 on the same day. Being tempted by such adverse conditions is one thing. During the day, your greatest enemy is the sun who flings its scorching anger upon anything that it can find its raw face too. But if you thought that was rough, it's the nights that are more dangerous. Because at the night, there's the predators. 
those that come out to feast because they're smart enough not to get out in the sun, looking for now the warmth of a warm-blooded animal to feast upon. Jesus' own creation at this point is a threat to him. I just I overlook that, right? Because I just think, okay, let's get to that 40th day. But I'd think, man, if I spent two days of this, it would seem like forever. How about you? For 40 days. No bed, no pillow, no cell phone coverage. Not a food to eat. See, Jesus would say, I only say what the Father tells me to say. And I only do what the Father tells me to do. I always do what pleases him. Could you imagine saying that? I think those things walk hand in hand. And the enemy knows it. So he's hungry. You would think that's kind of a duh. He hasn't eaten. He's hungry. But if you're familiar at all, by the way, with the alienation of, of, of what takes place during a person who is starving... Not just things like the catabolicis, the things where your muscles start to atrophy and everything starts to kind of erode so that your nervous system can still try to stay somewhat relatively healthy and your heart can function properly. I'm not talking about the things with the vitamin deficiencies where now you start finding yourself becoming anemic or finding scurvy or those kind of things. I'm talking about just what takes place when you stop eating at all. Not just the vitamin deficiency. I mean, for a series of days, by the way, you'll find yourself weak, of course, easily dehydrated. And what will happen is, is you'll find yourself where your body will start throwing up, of course, massive flashes of hunger. It's a natural appetite God gave us to survive. But Jesus is well aware of the fact that Scripture has made clear he's not to die there. And he's not going to die from stoning. He's going to have to die a much more torturous way than even these 40 days. But see, there comes a period of time where sooner or later your body ceases to be hungry. Because now it starts spending its energy elsewhere. Catabolysis. Atrophying the muscles. Shutting down skin. It stops replenishing itself. But there comes a point, finally, where your body, and this is how we invented you, God did. I think it's so marvelous that your body starts to send one last ditch clear warning that says, if you do not feed me now, your internal organs will start eating themselves. And the reason I say that is it's a crucial moment, as if the variable was a crucial moment. And when it, we read that Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and now he was hungry, it didn't just mean, well, of course he's hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. This was go time or it wasn't, and the enemy knows it. And so the enemy shows up. Of course he does. I think it's important that Matthew makes clear what he calls him in verse 3. Did you notice he's called the tempter? Pierazzo. Pierazzo is the word, by the way, from which Pierazzo, like the idea of being tested. Remember, tempt and test is the same. It's synonymous in this. I think it's interesting. He will, in essence, be called the tempter before a sin. He will be called the accuser after a sin. And then he'll be called the opponent throughout. Those are his words. The devil and Satan mean the accuser and the opponent. What I find interesting is, is what John will tell us. John tells us that in 1 John 5.19, the entire world is under the sway of the wicked one. The sway is influence. 
He doesn't own the land because we read all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So we need to stop thinking the devil owns this property. This is God's place. That doesn't mean that people will submit to the proper landlord. So what does it look like, this world that's under the dominion or the influence of the enemy? Well, it tells us in 1 John 2.16 when he tells us not to love the world or the things of it. And he tells us that the ingredients that Satan has used have only been three ingredients. They've always worked. They've never failed except till now. And they are this. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's it. Listen. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Hear that again. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's always worked. Understand, the idea of the lust of the flesh is your body wants something, but God hasn't given it. Listen, all the difference between lust, listen, a lust, listen an appetite is not a sin. It's where you order from. God gave us an appetite to eat. He gave us an appetite to drink. He gave us an appetite for fellowship. He gave us an appetite for purpose. Those are things God instilled within us. But he has a menu for every appetite he's given us. All that a lust is, epithemia, is taking that appetite and ordering off the menu. And you can say, but you don't understand. I have a desire in this direction. Or you don't understand. My appetite is here. That doesn't make it good or right just because you want something. Or me either. What we'll find is because we live in a fallen world, we all have appetites that do not coincide with God. And God is not going to change his mind. Perhaps you're familiar with a syndrome called Pico syndrome. Pico syndrome is a desire to eat pieces of broken glass or light bulbs or, which seems like almost the same thing, or gravel or dirt. There are those who genuinely crave those things. Now, the appetite's not wrong. To eat is right. It's what they're craving is where it's wrong. People say, you don't understand. I crave this. That doesn't make it right. You say, well, I have an appetite for this. That doesn't make it right. The appetite's okay. It's the menu that God has written. Because God gave us the menu. He knows what works for that appetite. So the lust of the flesh is that my body wants something, but God isn't giving it to me. On the other side of it, my body wanting something isn't wrong, as long as it's in God's menu. The lust of the eyes, I see something and I want it, but it's not what God would want to give us. Seeing something and wanting it isn't wrong if it's on in accordance with God's menu. It isn't like you have to pluck out your eyes, unless you are so fixated on something that God doesn't want to give you. And the pride of life says, me first. It's just that. I have a right. This is about me. You don't understand. And we get there. What's interesting is the first temptation we find in Scripture. Listen, 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 listen. Back in chapter 2 of Genesis. And if you got your Bibles, should be easy to get there. Second chapter of your first book. I want to point something out here because we'll see how this plays out in our text. I remind you, this is, where is this temptation taking place ultimately? The first one in Genesis? Where is that? In the garden. Don't miss that. Look at Genesis 2 verse 9. This is before the fall. This is what we read. Out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Did you see that? 
pleasant to the sight tells me my eyes would see it and want it, but it wasn't wrong. It's a desire of the, of the, of the eyes or a desire of the sight, but it is not a lust of the eyes. And good for food. What does that mean? It is a desire for the flesh, but not a lust of the flesh. God gave us a menu. Now, turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the enemy is speaking to Eve, notice the difference. I remind you in 2.9, all of the trees had this. In Genesis 3.6, about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says, So when the woman saw that that tree was good for food, what is that? A desire of the, of the flesh. And was pleasant to the eyes, that is a desire of the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one wise. She took an aid of it. Do you see the difference between this tree and all the others? And notice the way that the enemy pitched it was, you, don't, you know what happens if you eat of this? You'll be first now. It's about you. You'll be equal with God. You don't have to sit underneath his authority. The very problem that the enemy had. Now, you could be first. You could put yourself first, just like God. Could you see how the enemy used the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life to fall the first man and woman, to take us out of the garden into the wilderness? Should it surprise me that the enemy is going to try the same thing with Jesus? Isn't that what works for all of us? Now understand it says this, that the Lord will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you can handle. Do you realize that? And this is one of the reasons why I think we go up to temptation. And I don't mean temptation like God's providing opportunities to sin, because it says he doesn't tempt, nor does he test, nor is he himself tempted by evil. But to be in a place of testing, God is not allowing us in a place like that without knowing we could actually ace the test. As a teacher, I taught for five, six years, by the way, high school, secondary school. When I'd give out tests, I would pray and root for my kids because I didn't want to give anyone anything but an A. That doesn't mean they got it. But I wanted them to. And I see God doing the same. Laying out those tests and saying, I really want you to pass this. I want to make it simple. I want to make it clear. And then I just want you to step forward and I want you to pass these things. I want you to pass these things. But if you don't, that doesn't mean God doesn't have a right in his kindness now to inflict the punishment he promised. So please hear me in this. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And the enemy is going to come at Jesus with how many temptations here? Three. Do you see that? Well, it makes sense to me. So here we are now back in the wilderness. And so here it is. The tempter comes to him. Notice, by the way, you don't have to go find the enemy at a moment like this. The tempter will find you. And this is the first words, if you're the Son of God. Command that these stones become bread. Stones. The very stones that Jesus just left when John the Baptist said, don't you dare think for a moment you have safety by claiming your Jewish roots. God can take these stones and he could do anything when he wants them. He could actually make descendants of Abraham from stones. 
I think of the stones when Jesus is, is descending and then ascending at Palm Sunday at his triumphal entry where they tell his disciples, the religious leaders tell his disciples to be quiet. And he says, hey, if these guys are quiet, God will make the stones cry out. He can do whatever he wants with stones, of course. Is there any sin in bread? I mean, you look and you think, oh my goodness, from this point on, I knew Atkins was right. We need to get off those carbs. I knew it. See, look at that. Jesus right here shows us gluten-free diet. No, that's not it at all. The point is this. Jesus, as God, has the power to turn that stone to bread. He has it. It's within his power. But the Father hadn't given it. Because the Father hadn't given it, listen, it was off the menu. Because the Father had not provided it, it was off the menu. So then, I mean, he looks and he goes, hey, I thought you were God's kid. I thought, you, I thought God delighted in you. And please understand, the two things we learned before he left, you know, before he went into this temptation, the two things was that he had to know that, the, that, he, was the, that he was the Father's delight. And he had to know that the Spirit was upon him. And can I say, before you find yourself at a place of testing, the very two same things need to be clear. That you're God's child and he delights in you because if you don't have that you won't have the motivation to say no if the holy spirit isn't upon you you won't have the power to say no but because the holy spirit is upon you as god's people you have the power to say no and because you are the delight of the father you have the ability and the desire to say no so if the enemy can convince you that God is really angry with you and he's twisted and he's like somehow doesn't want to speak with you, give him some time to cool off, like maybe we would be if it was us at those moments, then we would be easy to fall into sin because why would we be challenged not to? Because we have nothing to lose. We've already blown it. God's already unhappy with us. What do I have to lose now? But Jesus knew that as he came in. And the enemy's going to start with this. Hey, I thought you were God's kid. So why is this, why this lack? Why don't you have this? Don't you want this? Doesn't your body crave this? Isn't this something entitled to you? Come on, you are the son of the most high God, the almighty. Why hasn't he given this to you? And get the idea in this. It isn't, notice by the way, the idea here is not, is God powerful enough? The issue is not God's power. The issue is God's personality. And isn't that where the enemy is going to go with you? It isn't, wow, God really didn't pull through on this one. It's like, why didn't he pull through, angel? Come on, Jay. Why didn't God give this to you yet? And the only two answers, by the way, at that point is either God is wrong or I'm wrong. No wonder why it says that when God does allow us to be tested, he will always, listen, 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 he will always provide a way for us to stand up and walk out of it. And that's what happens. That tells me that when temptation or testing besets me, it falls on top of me. And I find this thing on top of me, and I lose the hope that God would give me. And I go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God said I could stand up. I'm going to stand up. But I'm not going to get that without holding on to his word, and we're going to see that here in a moment. Do you realize what the enemy's testing? Now listen, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. 
listen, Jesus, you're hungry. It's been 40 days. If you don't eat now, you know you're going to die. Do you think the father's going to be upset if you take matters in your own hands? Things are getting laid on this thing. And he hasn't provided. I don't know what's wrong with God the father right now. I don't know what's wrong with your dad. So why don't you take matters in your own hands and do it? Which of those three things is he trying to tempt Jesus with? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, or the pride of life? You tell me. Which one? Lust of the flesh. Your body craves this. What's wrong with this? But notice again, it was off the menu. Jesus' quotes, by the way, and I find this interesting, his quotes will all be where God taught us in the wilderness in Deuteronomy. Doesn't that sound appropriate? Since the testing is in the wilderness, he would take us back to the wilderness. At the end of the wilderness in Deuteronomy, right before they crossed over out of the wilderness, these are the lessons we need to learn. And in chapters 6 and 8 of Deuteronomy, where all three of these texts that Jesus is going to throw out at them, please hear me on this. Please hear me. Those are the two chapters where it fundamentally focuses on this. First of all, you need to recognize, I led you in the wilderness I didn't give you what you wanted. I gave you what you needed. And I didn't do it in a way so that you had abundance of bread before you. I rained it from heaven so that you know that the only thing you need to live on is my word. So the first part of it is that when you look back, you need to recognize I've always taken care of you, just not the way you told me to. But you've been taken care of. Your feet never swelled. Your clothes never worn out. Huh. But then there's another warning. He goes, I want you to recognize that. So in the present, you need to know, I'm the only one worth worshiping. I'm the only one worth serving. Me alone. And he goes, and then when you look at the future, I want to warn you, you're going to wind up in houses that you didn't build. You're going to get vineyards you didn't plant. And you're going to get fat and you're going to get lazy. And when you do, don't forget about me. Don't forget, because what's going to happen is the tendency will be able to say, you did this instead of me. And he goes, you know what? Let's get it down to the simplest thing. You want to keep it simple? It's Deuteronomy 6 where he says, would you just hear this? Look, at, I know I've said a lot, God speaking, but please just hear this. Please, Israel, would you just hear this? I want your love. All your heart, your soul, your strength. I want your love. And if you gave me that, we will not be bantering over any of this. We won't look at the past and think how God didn't or barely pulled through. And we won't look at the future and think, good, I finally get to get out of this. We'll look and say, you know what? I just want to love you in whatever place you lead me. I want to love you. So Jesus leads us back to in the wilderness where we're taught such a thing. Reminding me, by the way, that even though I'm in the wilderness, that doesn't mean God's not there. And it'd be easy in those moments of challenge where I would think, where's God in this? This is, listen, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if God hasn't said it, then I'm not going to do it. Jesus won Satan nothing. The lust of the flesh defeated Strange, of the three kings that led the United Empire, Solomon, David, well, David, ultimately Saul, David, and Solomon, it was such a lust that took down Solomon, did it not? Verse 5, then, the devil took him up to a higher place than just that wilderness. And it tells us now that the devil took him up into the holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. 
Daniel, would you show us those pictures, please? I want to show you a little bit of what the pinnacle of the temple kind of looks like and why that, what that means. The temple, by the way, is built originally on a hill. The, there would be limestone would, would be up this high and work its way down like this. So ultimately what would happen is, is that when Herod had this thing rebuilt, uh, aggrandized, what he did is he just simply carved the actual limestone up on the higher side of it and made it look like the stones and then put the stones here so that it all kind of looked consistent. When you, those of you who want to go to Israel will see that when we go and take our trip. So, But there is, because of that, geographically or topographically, what that means is there is a spot where it is the highest because the hill itself is the lowest, but yet everything is level. That is the spot of the blowing of the shofar. As a matter of fact, we found this stone there. Go ahead with the second, if you would, please, Daniel. Um, and this particular stone says exactly that, that this is the place of the blowing of the shofar. It was the place where it was declared. And this was the mindset, was that, listen, that the Messiah, if he was going to show up anywhere, that would be the most logical place. Because it would be the place where we blow the trumpet and everybody turns to look and say, what are you calling us to? And if the Messiah were to be carried by angels, it would make perfect sense. And that's, of course, where the, where the enemy goes. Interesting. Notice what the enemy does here. In verse 5, it says it took him there. Verse 6, again, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his hands, I'm sorry, he will give his angels charge over you. And in their hands, they should bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. How many of you know that the devil can quote scripture? If it serves his purpose. What's interesting is, of course, he's not going to quote the entire text, because if he quoted the entire text, he would be shut down. Listen, Psalm 91, starting at verse 9. I'm just going to read 9 to 16. You tell me what part you think he purposely left out. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor any plague come near your dwelling. For he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Into your hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Do you think he left that out? I think he's very aware of that text. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And understand, the enemy takes a part of that, a little part of that verse. And what happened is, is that when the enemy came at Jesus, Jesus went and he took out the sword and he stabbed. And the enemy goes, huh, and he turns around and he tries to stab back. But Jesus didn't just use the sword to assault. He used it to dig the roots down deep into the firm soil of the word of God. So listen, come on, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, that's what everyone's looking for. Why not just throw yourself off and show it? Why don't you just prove it? Come on, take the matters into your own hands and let everyone see how important you really are. So let me ask you this. Which temptation is being used now? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. You tell me which one? The pride of life. The pride of life. And this is the point. Understand from the perspective of going at a king is like, look at it. You know how important you can make yourself. You want to see things kill people? Watch fame do it. 
Oh, it works for so many people because the moment they have to think that everything's about them, and for sometimes, to be honest, in their life, they have a lot of evidence to make it that. They make themselves the most important thing in their own life. They start reading their own press clippings. But what happens when that starts to fade? And so what happens in all of this? Come on, Jesus. Now is the time. Isn't that what he's basically playing on all of these? Now's the time. Stop waiting for this. Aren't you tired of waiting for people to realize how important you are? Aren't you tired of waiting to see how this really, to get the promotion and the thing you think you deserve? Come on, step it up and prove it. I mean, isn't it scriptural that the angels will catch you? Please hear me. The difference between faith and presumption is this. Faith. Lord, if you wish for me to walk on the water, command me to step out. Presumption. I'm jumping. Catch me. Do you hear the difference? Faith is stepping out on the clear command of God. Presumption is you making the choice and assuming God's going to back you up. So the enemy says, come on, this is what Scripture says. Sorta, ish. Jesus responds now from Deuteronomy 6, again, just verses before. You read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4. Don't put the Lord your God to test. It is not faith to say, I'm doing this, God, back me up. Because what you're doing is you are demanding it. You've seen these relationships, I know you've seen them, where there's someone that's a line drawer, you know, like, if you really loved me, you'd... The problem is, is that line drawing is actually addicting. So it's like, look, if you really loved me, you'd step past this line. Whatever this line is, the problem is, once you've stepped past it, maybe you've proved it for a moment, but then there's a whole new line getting invented in their heart. You know that. Don't you realize we could do that with God? If you really loved me, you wouldn't get me kicked out of this house. If you really loved me, you would keep this relationship. If you really loved me, I'd stay in that job, or you'd get me that job, or you'd get me that audition. If you really loved me, I wouldn't get sick. If you really loved me, no thing, nothing would befall me. As a matter of fact, if you really loved me, wouldn't it be just like this? Angels are going to surround me in such a way that I'll never even stub my toe. Doesn't that sound like this? So Jesus is like, you know, let me tell you what the Bible really says. It says, do not demand God to back you up like that. Don't put him to test. And putting someone to test is drawing the line. If you really loved me, do this. That's putting him to test. Strike two. Jesus two. The enemy, nada. He has fallen to the lust of the enemy has fallen in his attempt to take Jesus down with the lust of the flesh. He's fallen to take Jesus down with the pride of life. So what's left? The lust of the eyes. But think this one through for a moment, because this is where it just gets beautiful. What do you show God that he could see that he'd go, Oh, I want that. I mean, it isn't like you could, I guarantee you, Jesus wasn't going to look at the new iPhone or the iCar or whatever, you know, and go, oh man, I need that. Boy, if I could just show up at the pearly gates of that thing, blanging, oh, Peter's going to go, woo, 
would you do? I mean, really, what does he show God that he wants? Because, see, this is the most amazing thing to me. I am convinced that the enemy knows things about us that we know less, including how important we are to God, including how, to be honest, how dangerous a joyful Christian is. You know, perhaps you're familiar with the text where it says, you know, and many people like to quote half of it, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. What does it say before resist the devil? Yeah, huh, huh. You don't get it as much? Submit yourself to God. Oh, wow. How did I miss that? See, if I submit myself to God, I'm under His authority. And if I submit myself to God, then resisting is resisting myself from stopping submitting myself to God. That's the point. And what do you think the enemy is saying by throwing yourself off the pinnacle, man? What he's saying is, you don't need to submit to the Father. We're going to see that even in the last one, even to a greater degree. Each one increasingly with that point to where it just becomes raw and open before us, like the very Jordan Valley. He's, oh, come on. You really need to submit? You know when the enemy flees, it isn't because you become like, look, I'm like a lobo now, man. Don't mess with me, man. I'm a man of God. And you come near me, man. I'm going to blast you with the Holy Ghost. Listen, listen. You know why the enemy flees when you submit to God? Because you stopped fighting the battle, and he does. And he is no match, and he knows it. So, what could Jesus possibly see? He would want so bad that he would be tempted. Tempted means he wants it, but he knows it's not right. Isn't that what a temptation is? You want it, but you know it's not right. I am not tempted by coffee, with all due respect. You know, can I tempt you with this? I don't like it. Tastes like dirt to me? You're welcome to drink it. It's not a sin. You force it on me? It might be. You can't be tempted by what you don't crave in one way or another. And all a temptation is, is something you could want that you know you shouldn't have. God isn't given. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him up even higher now. We went up to the wilderness, up to the pinnacle. What could be higher than that? The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. And I wonder if these are even like levels some challenge like this is the greatest level for this for my king my God my savior the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory did the devil know this better than us He's like, if I could show him one thing and go, oh, this, take a look at this, Amber. Hi, by the way. You know, oh, this, I know more than anything you want this. What would it be? What's the one thing you could see at that moment? And you would go, oh, this is really tempting. Come on, I can give it to you now. But you're going to have to fall down and worship me. And boy, it can't get more clear than that of what Satan's looking for. I could give it to you now, but you can't have it forever. That's sin. I can give it to you now, but you can't have it forever. It's not just the kingdoms, because this is our king. That's their glory. 
what is the glory of a kingdom? If it's all the kingdoms, beloved, where do we live? The United Kingdom. So is this also part of that? If the enemy showed Jesus all the kingdoms, did he show him this one? If he didn't, then he didn't show Jesus all the kingdoms. The question is, what is the glory of a kingdom? People. Do you realize what the enemy knows better than us is that the one thing that could really tempt Jesus was you? Do you realize that? That the one thing Jesus could look at and go, oh, I want that. It's the only time he goes, get out of here. That's what Jesus says. Why do you think that was the case? You ever have that? Whoa. Don't worry, that'll get fixed. Why? Because it tempted him that much, but he was not going to fall. Because he wanted it that bad. And he was not going to fall. Because if he fell, he'd get you for a moment. Listen what it says in Hebrews 12 too. We look under Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy set before him? It was you. It was me. You see, what the enemy showed Jesus was me, was you. And he said, come on, Jesus. Now, the enemy did not tempt Jesus with something like I would be with coffee. It isn't like Jesus went, well, that was rough. No, thank you. It's like, away with you, Satan, because it is so clear that only God is to be worshipped and not you. And again, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, where God said, would you please hear this, Israel? I just want your love. That's all I really want. But I cannot love God and worship Satan. And I'm so thankful God is God and I'm not because I don't love you enough to kill my kid for you. I would, I could see dying. Prefer it to be quicker. But it took me to have my own children to realize a greater love is in giving your son or your child than it would be to die yourself. And thus God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Away with you, Satan. Adversary, opponent, that's what Satan means. You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only you shall serve. Kind of hurts to hear that, doesn't it, Satan? You're not getting anywhere with me. Jesus would say to his disciples on his way to the cross, he'd say, the enemy has nothing in me. It's been knocking. I'm not letting it in. This particular section ends with this. That the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. But I want you to recognize what it says in Luke 4.13 when we see the parallel text. 
It says, now the devil, when he had ended every temptation, departed from him until an opportune time. The enemy was looking for another temptation. Does anyone know where that second temptation would be? In Luke 22, Jesus would say in verses 40 and 46 about them, listen, stay here and pray that you may not enter temptation. And when they had fallen asleep, he says, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. To the three that he had brought to the closest to him, where was he then? A garden. Should it surprise us? Man went from the garden to the wilderness by succumbing to the very temptations that Jesus conquered and Jesus would go from the wilderness to the garden so that we could actually have that intimacy that he desired, that he came down here to grant us. So let me ask you something as we bring this now to prayer. Do you really think Jesus is an an option? What compares? Who else did this for you? Do you think if the enemy had showed anyone else, any other religious leader, your face that would have tempted him? Unless it was out of complete and abject subservience? Not out of love? Find that in another book, that the one thing I really want is your love. Find that. What you realize is only the truth. Praise God that the one that we read is the real one. Praise God, because I sure hate it to be one of those other guys. And you're like, well, that sounds so close-minded and mean. Man, not if you read the other books and compare it to this one. If, you had, if, I, if they were all real and they're not, and I had a choice, I would still choose this one. Because this one loves me and wants me and proved it. So let me ask you, if Jesus is willing to go to the garden from the wilderness and then die on a cross so that he could redeem us, pay your price. For all that we've cashed in from the, the, if you will, the products of sin, he paid the bill. Do you really want somebody else who didn't pay the bill? Who just demands subservience without it? Do you really want something else? Do you really want it to be Jesus and something? What Luke makes clear is you don't have to be God to overcome these temptations. You just need to be filled with them. But if I could hear today, my father say, you're mine and I delight in you. And I knew that God's Holy Spirit was readily on demand for me. Well, then I guess I'd like to think that'd be all the motivation and power I need. I'm clear and sure of it. To win. Last thing, and we'll pray. I heard once... C.S. Lewis quote, well, I didn't hear him personally, but I read, that he had quoted George MacDonald, who had said, you do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. That sticks with me. You see, what the enemy tries to do, and please hear me, is he tries to take us out of the eternal and bring us into the temporal. And once he brings us into the temporal, the only place left for it to go is just to us. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller until we suffocate. Is that what you want? And the Lord, on the other hand, came down into this suffocating, small, claustrophobic place 
to go and to defeat Satan because though we had flesh and blood, he too shared in the same that he might, through his death, destroy him who had the power of death and release all those who all their life were subject to bondage by their fear of it. He came down here to win where we lost. Here's the most amazing thing. His victory grants us the opportunity to be victorious too. Have you said yes to this Jesus? Because I'm going to give you that choice. But if you have said yes to that Jesus, are there sins you're succumbing to right now that you feel like they're bigger than you? Today, what if we could stand up and walk out? Not just of church, but of the test. We could say, yes, Lord, I want to be that son you delight in. I want to live in that delight. And I need your power today. Your power. What if from this point on you saw something and the enemy starts throwing it at you when you go, the Holy Spirit says, hey, that's lust of the flesh. It's off the menu. And you're like, I know, but I want it clearly or it wouldn't be tempting. You see something like, I want that. He's like, that's less of the eyes. But I want it, of course, or it wouldn't be tempting. Or, well, you don't understand. I need to be first. I need to make this happen. I'm going to push and shove and twist and hurt and do whatever I need to do. I need to get this. This is going to be about me and I'm going to win. The opposite is the humility. And I think of my Savior who said, unless he gives it, I'm not going to take it. Unless he tells me I'm not going to do it. Unless he makes it clear I'm not going to say it. Wow. Wouldn't that be great? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this amazing gift you've given us. Will you show us that you had the power to say no? I realize that before your Holy Spirit entered me, I have no I, I was a sucker to sin. I was clearly one who just said yes. With no recourse. And, and I think it's crazy to think that we could talk to people who don't know you and just tell them to stop doing stuff that we ourselves were incapable of stopping before we said yes to you. But tonight, today here, I just pray you would meet us right in this very spot. <clears throat> and Lord, I know what you're really looking for is the one thing Jesus demonstrated, love. And that love looks like surrender and obedience. That's what it looks like. Surrendering to your provision. Surrendering to your power. Surrendering to your plan. Surrendering to your purpose. Surrendering to your presence. And God, I just pray today for anyone here who has made a claim to know you, that you reignite those things in us. That humility that steps back and lets you do it. Because it's really just about you, Jesus. So I pray right now for every believer in this room, everyone who's made claim to you, that today in this room, you would reignite our hearts for this purpose. To say, Lord, I recognize I have appetites, but I also recognize that's my soul, that's who I am. But those appetites you've placed in me, the issue isn't the appetite, the issue is the menu. Lord God, I want to surrender to your menu. To where you provide, not me. For your glory, not mine. For your pleasure. And I will take pleasure in your pleasure in it. Please, Lord. 
eradicate, exhume, purge from us the areas where we are so naturally prone to say yes before we even think. Yes to the temptations instead of yes to you. Show us, Lord, in times of testing that there are times of elevation. Where in those moments, there are audiences, audiences of wild beasts and angels alike, where very heaven is watching in our obedience, but also the very wild beasts around us also watching. And I know, Lord, around us, there are very many wild animals around us who wouldn't give a, a, wouldn't give a pent about our God the way we preach you until they see us in a moment like this where they're really looking to see how real you are. And I pray, Lord, that as your son, Father, was in the wilderness, tempted for 40 days among wild animals and angels alike, show us, God, that victory in our own lives. And show us the honor of representing you at times of testing. Knowing, Lord, that you give a test with the purpose of us passing. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've not said yes to this Jesus, and today perhaps for the first time you recognize how much He wants you, broken, filthy, mucked up, whatever the terms you want, He'll take you just as you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. Pray this prayer with me right now. And God vows to you that He will transform you in doing so. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. I have cashed in for what I thought were the benefits of sin. But I'm becoming increasingly aware of their bill. I recognize You created me to be with You. And it's my iniquities that have separated me from You. But you've also made clear that you so loved me that you sent Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, to die on a cross so that my bill could be fully paid. And when he died on that cross, I was paid in full. But just like Scripture promised as well, on the third day he rose again. After being buried, he rose again to prove that he had conquered not just sin, but death itself. So that he could say, oh death, where is your sting? Or if you will, is that all you got? He is truly and absolutely victorious. And I want to live like that. So if what you're asking is for me to accept that gift of Jesus, confessing Him not only as my payment, but also as my Lord, my leader, my King, well, I say yes. I say yes as I throw myself in your arms. They're outstretched for me. I say, have me. Take my life and make it yours now. I surrender myself to you. Every appetite 
every desire, let them be yours now. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. So Lord, I pray for those who prayed that prayer today. That you would seal that in their hearts. And that today we would walk out of here victorious in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.